Let's turn in the scriptures to 1 Peter. There are two letters of Peter in the New Testament. It's actually right after the letter that James wrote to suffering believers. We are starting, this is actually the second week, we're just starting a series called Testify of Jesus. It's a series in which we study, Lord willing, Peter's first letter, Peter's second letter, and the gospel according to Mark, which according to ancient testimony is actually Mark's record of how Peter would have answered the question, so who is Jesus? What did, what did he do and why should I follow him? Mark and Peter were very close, as even the end of this letter suggests. These three books that we're studying emphasize what it really looks like to testify of Jesus. Not only in our words, it certainly indicates that, but also in our lives and our behavior and the life change that Jesus works in all who follow him. Last week, we began looking at the first letter of Peter. We looked at the first 12 verses in chapter 1. And we learned, I really emphasized, we learned that Peter's thinking is Trinitarian. Peter wants Christians to know that they have been given grace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, from the triune God. The word triune means triunity, or we would say three in one, or three in oneness. The, the, the nature of God is three persons in one being. From Peter's personal interaction with Jesus, he was convinced that God was three persons in one being, that God the Father had sent God the Son on a mission, a mission of love to die for sinners and to prove that he could rule righteously over this planet and he could remake it. And as God the Son accomplished that mission, he was empowered by God the Spirit. And yet, Peter understood that although God the Father sent God the Son on the mission who was empowered by God the Spirit, there aren't three gods. There are three persons, yet God is only one. And the fact that Peter is convinced that God is triune is amazing. It's amazing. It's because Peter was a Jew. And Jews are strictly monotheistic. If there is anything Jews believed about God, they believe, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet, if you look again at verse 2, Peter describes Christians as those who are chosen and loved by God the Father. They're set apart by God the Spirit for a life of commitment to Christ, God the Son. And the whole structure of his thinking in verses 3 to 12 is Trinitarian. The way I pointed it out last week is, in the main point, was just to say, God the Father has blessed us with unshakable hope. God the Son with indomitable joy. And God the Spirit with wonderful revelation about the details of our inheritance. So this means that Peter, a first century Jew, a strict monotheist, lived with another man for about three years. He watched him daily, and then he watched him die, and he witnessed his resurrection. He witnessed him ascend into heaven saying, I'm going to return in like manner. And Peter, 
a first century Jew became strictly convinced that this man he lived with wasn't merely God's chosen king to rule on earth, but he was in fact God. He eternally existed before creation, and he will be forever worshipped as God. Wow. Christians do not believe that God is triune because it's easy, simple, because it's intuitive, because that's how we naturally think of God. It's none of those things. Instead, we believe that God is triune because that's who he's revealed himself to be. We struggle to make sense of it, actually, but it's who God has revealed himself to be consistently in the scriptures. Now, the dominant focus in these first 12 verses was on our hope, our future certainty that God the Father has chosen us for, that God the Son will be the center of, that God the Spirit has revealed to us the details of. It's on our future hope. But now today, we turn our attention to how this hope affects our lives. How this hope affects our lives. That's 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 25. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written about five or six times in Leviticus especially, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Your exile, that's really interesting. It's your temporary residence or your pilgrimage. These few years, conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Messiah, God's chosen king, the Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That's an incredible statement. Before God ever created the world, he had planned out the crucifixion of Jesus. But Jesus in recent days, in these last times, has been made manifest, put on display for your sake. You, who through him are believers in God. God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. Just take a, take a look at that phrase again in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. You work that out chronologically, and it's basically, since you have already submitted your life to Jesus, you've decisively committed yourself in obedience to Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. You've had your hearts cleansed and changed and become part of God's family. So your hearts have been changed by your commitment to Jesus 
so that you now relate to others, other Christians, as, as brothers and sisters. So, verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed that lasts forever through the living and abiding word of God. For, and here he quotes Isaiah 40, all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. In other words, if the life in you is, is merely human, it's passing. You're going to die. But if what's working in you, if the principle of life that's working in you is the word of God, you're going to live forever. And he says to his audience who's suffering, and this is the message, the good news that was preached to you. It has the power to give you eternal life. Hmm. So in the first part of the chapter, Peter's focus had been on the unshakable hope that's been given to you by God the Father, God the, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And in this passage, he focuses on how your life should change as a result. You should live in a way that aligns with your hope. I'd say it, the way Christians live must be dominated by the new realities of our relationship with this God of grace. We understand that by grace, God has brought us into a relationship with himself. This relationship is binding. It changes our lives. The way Christians live must be dominated by the new realities of our relationship with the God of grace. And Peter stresses three facets of this new relationship, this life-changing reality of a relationship with the God of grace. I'm going to spend most of my time, the majority of my time, on the first of three points, but there will be three life-changing realities of our relationship with God. The first is this. Christian, God is now your father. So live like him. Imitate him. It's verses 13 to 16. Peter's exact words, look at verse 13 again, are gird up the loins of your mind. That's how the King James translates it. I like that translation because it captures the Passover imagery. Gird up the loins of your mind. The imagery comes from 1,500 years before Peter when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and God said, I am going to send this angel to pass over, and if blood is on your doorpost, then your son, your firstborn son, is going to remain alive. But if there's no blood on, your, on, on the posts of your door, then your firstborn son is going to die. It was the literal Passover. And he told them that night when they were eating the Passover, he said, I'm quoting Exodus 12:11, eat dinner with your belt fastened and with sandals on your feet and with your staves, your staves in your hand. Keep your staff in your hand, keep sandals on your feet, and keep your belt fastened. The reason he said that is because they were supposed to eat dinner ready to run. They had been in Egypt 400 years, ever since Joseph brought the family over. 400 years later, they're being treated as slaves, they're being oppressed, and this was the night they were finally to make their exit. So, they needed to eat in a way that was ready that in a moment's notice they could stand up and if you're an 
Old Testament Israelite, you're wearing a long robe. You need to have your belt fastened so that you can grab the edges of your robe, stuff them into your belt, and run. (laughs) And Peter says, do that to your minds. Are you ready to run? Are you ready for the trumpet blast? The archangel is going to blow the trumpet and the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout. Are you ready? We should be alert, living with the loins of our minds girt, our belts fastened, ready to run, ready at a moment's notice. We should be alert. We should be prayerful. We should be faithful. We shouldn't ever do anything that we'd be ashamed of doing if, while we're doing it, Jesus came back. Gird up the loins of your mind. Peter urges there, verse 13, set your minds on this future hope and live like it. He says, verse 14, As obedient children, stop living like you used to live before you were adopted into God's family. Before you were born into God's family, you used to live a self-centered life. But now, you need to be holy. And he reiterates this command that was given multiple times on Sinai. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, God kept saying repeatedly, it's, I said it earlier, it's repeated like six or seven times in Leviticus, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, many people hear that word holy today, and they immediately get the wrong idea. They might have seen Monty Python and his holy hand grenade and his complete mockery of Leviticus. This is the holy hand grenade, ha 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 ha. Or they've watched a show with a scary religious priest who's hypocritical, he's wearing black, and he's urging everyone who's under the sound of his voice to some inhumane, cruel holiness be like God. You get these wrong ideas. Holiness is often associated with like a fake seriousness or a false religiosity. You you hear the word holy and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's religious, religious, religious. Now, the word holy means consecrated. It means fully devoted. It means marked as belonging to someone. We might simply say, as long as we have the right idea of it, we might just say special. You're special to God. You belong to God. You're God's. That's what the word holy means. A better illustration of it from a simple but quite profound example is actually from the 25-year-old cartoon, Toy Story. Woody is the the little cowboy figurine, the action figure. And he's holy. You say, what? He's holy. A little boy named Andy has taken a black permanent marker and written on the bottom of his boot, Andy. That means that Woody is set apart to Andy. He belongs to Andy. He's consecrated to Andy. He's Andy's. If you were Hebrew, you would say, he's holy, he's set apart. That's the imagery. And you say, now, 
what does Peter have in mind when he says, be holy? Like, can you get more specific? Because holiness seems kind of general. When he says, put off those old things and, and now be holy like God is holy, what does he mean? So, I think there's a way to get more specific and fairly quickly. I think there, there are like four passages in which Peter outlines what holiness looks like. He gives us specific ideas of what this holiness of life looks like. And we, we can see it in four places because Peter constantly is talking about holiness. It's a recurring theme throughout this whole letter. So look down at chapter 2, verse 1. Peter says, So put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. If you're set apart to God, God's not like any of those things. Don't let your life be marked by hatred, deception, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Don't be like that. It's not what God is like. Don't be like that. You're his child. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Second example. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Very similar to what we just read in chapter 1. And then in the next verse, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. And he goes on to describe how we should respect government leaders and submit to them as much as we're able to do. We should be marked by an honorable demeanor and action when it comes to obeying our laws. If we're able to obey them, we should. And we should be respectful toward those in leadership. The third passage, look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Peter's going to say, be unified, sympathize with each other, have brotherly love, have tender hearts, be humble, don't repay evil for evil. No, when someone treats you wrongly, pray for God's blessing on them. Or the final passage I'll point us to, and there are others, but look at chapter 4, verse 2. Again, he uses this concept of your former passions. And he says, Christians, don't live any longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then he goes on to specify in the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 3, flee sexual immorality. He describes sexual immorality with a couple different words. And he says, stop going to drunken parties. Don't keep living in false religion. There you get like 15 ideas of what holiness looks like. Don't do this. Do this. Don't be like this. Be like this. You just summarize it by saying something like, stop being an angry person. Stop being disrespectful. Instead, be honorable. Stop being self-centered and be others-minded. Even when others mistreat you, bless them. Live like Jesus. Be humble. Be self-controlled. Pray for others. You'd get this kind of idea. That's what holiness is. A way of saying it is just holiness is living like humans were meant to live, devoted to God and putting others ahead of ourselves. Holiness is what it means to, to live a fully human life like God intended it. You can see that holiness in the Bible doesn't refer to living in some like unhuman, self-harmful way as is often caricaturized in our society. It's living like we were intended to live. It's really living like Jesus. Kevin DeYoung has a good little book called The Hole in Our Holiness. Problems with Christians even talking about holiness today. It's an excellent little book. And in it, I'm just going to quote two paragraphs. He says, holiness is explicitly about our character. 
We put off sin and we put on righteousness. And then he describes the anatomy of holiness. He says, our minds are filled with the knowledge of God. They're fixed on what's good. Our eyes turn away from sensuality and we shudder at the sight of evil. Our mouths tell truth. We refuse to gossip or slander or speak what's coarse or obscene. Our spirits are earnest, steadfast, and gentle. Our hearts are full of joy instead of hopelessness, patience instead of irritability, kindness instead of anger, humility instead of pride, thankfulness instead of envy. Our sexual organs are reserved for the privacy of marriage between a man and one woman. The feet move toward the lowly and away from senseless conflict, divisions, and wild parties. Our hands are quick to help those in need and ready to fold in prayer. He says, this is the anatomy of holiness. You get the idea. This is like what humans were intended to be. And then he just capstones it saying, we see in Jesus the best, most practical human example of what it means to be holy. He was always gentle, but never soft. He was bold, but never brash. Pure, but never prudish. Full of mercy, but not at the expense of justice. He was full of truth, but not at the expense of grace. In everything, he was submissive to his heavenly father, and he gave everything for his sheep. He obeyed his parents. He kept the law of God. He forgave his enemies. He never lusted, never coveted, never lied. And in all that Jesus did during his whole life, and especially as his life came to an end, he loved God with his whole being, and he loved others, his neighbors as himself. That's what holiness looks like. You can see it's not fake religiosity. It's humanity as we were intended to live. Centered on God, putting others is more important than ourselves. And Peter is stressing that there is a distinct connection between when our minds are filled with our hope and our holiness, the way we live. When your mind has, as it were, the belt tightened, ready to run, you live in a way that's distinct, that's set apart, belonging to God. It changes your life. The second point, Christian, your father is the judge of every person. So live with a healthy fear of him. It's verses 17 to 20. Your father is the judge of every person. So live with a healthy fear of him. Peter reasons in verse 17 if your father's the one who's going to judge every person according to their works, then you should live the rest of your life with fear. It doesn't mean that you're scared of God or that you dread him. It does mean that you live with an awesome respect that influences your faith and hope. Tom Schreiner explains this fear is not a paralyzing terror, but a fear of God's discipline and of his fatherly displeasure. I think that's a helpful way of putting it. In other words, we're not terrified that we are going to be condemned when we see our Father. Not at all. When God judges us as his children, it's not going to be like, do your good works outweigh your bad? And it's not going to be to judge us of whether we should go to heaven or hell. That's not what Peter's describing. He's describing our father as being the judge. He is the judge who has the right to send people to heaven or hell. 
So fear him. He is the judge who will be aware of everything we do and say. So be careful in all you do and say. But the whole point of Peter up to this point is that we've been forgiven. We've been shown grace by this God. And now he's saying, well, if the judge of all people is your father, live with a, with a respect that's appropriate to that. Sort of like if I was teaching a class and my children were in it. And I said, I've got to leave the room for 30 minutes. I want you all to focus on doing problems 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10. When I come back, I want to see that you've all, you've all done it. I would hope that my kids in that class would not only relate to me as a child, but also as a teacher who's going to come back and hopefully hear that they haven't been playing for the last half hour. When I come back and evaluate what everyone's done, I hope that I find that for my kids, the fact that I'm their father and their teacher has motivated them. That they care about displeasing me. They don't want me to come back and be displeased with them. Are my kids going to fear that if they end up playing with their friends, I'm going to come back and say, you're no longer my child? No, it's not going to happen. That's Peter's thinking here. One pastor named David Helm puts it like this. He says, Christian, whenever we begin thinking, oh, I can do this and get away with it, God will forgive me. After all, God's my father, therefore he's my friend. We're on dangerous ground. Peter says, recognize, your father's the judge of every person and live accordingly. There's a healthy fear that should be there. He adds to this actually in verse 18 when he says, he says, God is not only your judge, but also your master. And he uses the concept of ransom. He, he's building on this concept of respect or fear. A ransom is a payment that's made on the slave market to buy a slave at market. Would have been very familiar in pretty much any town in the ancient world. And God conveyed what Jesus did for us in terms of paying a ransom payment. Peter's words suggest, when he says God ransomed you, he suggests that every Christian needs to remember that at one time we were slaves. We were slaves to our rebellion against God, and we were slaves condemned to death. But God, with the blood of Jesus, purchased us off of that slave market. That's the imagery, the powerful, grotesque imagery. We were slaves, and God bought us. He owns us. He's our master. Peter emphasizes that we were not bought with money that loses its value to inflation. Money has decreasing value over time. He says you weren't redeemed with money that loses its value. No, you were redeemed by the invaluable blood of earth's king. That should lead you to live with some respect with some fear, with a healthy sobriety, right? Now, you might be sitting here today and you say, whoa, you're now talking like making me uncomfortable. Slave to sin and death, heaven and hell, God is judge. This is not what I want to hear this morning. And I would again say something that I often say. I would say, if you're reacting like that against this message, then you need to realize that 
what you want to be true may not be true. And your wanting something to be true doesn't make it true. Peter lived for years with Jesus. He's writing this letter. He has witnessed Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' resurrection, ascension into heaven, promising to return. And he said, Jesus is the eternal God the Son. He's worthy of our worship. We were created for him. We were created to, to glorify him by the way we live. This is reality. Whether you're comfortable with that or not is really your issue. Reality says every one of us comes into this world naturally bent away from God, wanting to be our own authority rather than having God as a master. And yet God in love sent Jesus to pay the price to get us out of our slavery to sin and death if we would turn from our sin and we would embrace Jesus, we would obey Jesus, commit ourselves to Jesus, follow him, we could be given new life. Are you willing? Are you willing to say, I don't like that reality, but it is reality, and I need to, I need to come to terms with it? Are you willing to say, yeah, my life is kind of self-centered, actually quite self-centered, God, I'm sorry, you made me to love you and others, and I love myself. Forgive me. Jesus, you died for me. I need you. Jesus, be mine. Are you willing? I pray that you experience the grace of Jesus today, working in your heart, making you open to that kind of personal reception of Jesus. One of the ways that God helps us maintain and to deepen our sobriety about him as our judge and master is actually at the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's Supper, which we'll observe in just a few minutes, we are constantly reminded that we have a relationship with the God of the universe through the shed blood of Jesus. And every time we're confronted with that reality that we have a relationship with God through the grace of Jesus, we're, we're not only remembering it, but we're thanking him for it. And we're reconsecrating ourselves to him, saying, God, you bought me with blood. I belong to you. Help me to live for you. This should happen every time we're at the table. Third point. Christians, since God is now your father, Christians are now your brothers and sisters. So live with love for them. Since God's now your father, Christians are now your brothers and sisters, so live with love for them. In this final portion, Peter emphasizes that Christians have been born into God's family. And notice the word seed. Verse 23, seed. He's describing a reproductive organism. And his main point is that the seed that has given you life is the gospel, the central message of the Bible. So you can go out to a store and you can get seeds of different kinds. You can get like a tomato seed and that should produce, if you plant it and water it and it gets sun, it should produce a tomato plant. 
and that tomato plant should produce tomatoes because that's the kind of seed that's at work. Well, human reproduction basically begins with an organism that meets with another organism, and that can produce a human that can have reproductive capacity to actually give birth to more humans. But Peter is saying, with that kind of imagery of the seed, he's saying the seed of the gospel gives you life in God's family, and it produces in your life love for your brothers and sisters. The gospel doesn't leave you the way it found you. It transforms you from being a self-centered person to considering others more important than yourselves. That kind of life is eternally at work in you. Recognize it. That's what Peter's saying. Now, I need to stress again. I said it at the outset of our service today, but I need to stress it again. This does not mean that we are perfect. Tri-County, in many ways, I think that when we get to heaven and and we have a more mature perspective on our efforts at love down here, we're going to say that, like, at best, we were three- or four-year-olds. I've raised a few three- or four-year-olds. And let me tell you, they try to love each other. They try. With a lot of instruction, commands, discipline. Please stop talking like that to your sister. Please stop talking like that to your brother. They, they struggle. But they're my children, and they do love each other. I know they do. And they sometimes prove it in ways that provoke tears. They do love each other. But they're still immature and they struggle. I hope that you have that kind of mind when you are at Tri-County. We want to grow, and there are remarkable evidences of love in this congregation. I'm not saying there aren't. I'm just saying, from heaven's perspective, we're going to realize that we're very, very immature. But it's at work in us. It's working. And Peter's saying, let that, that seed that eternal life that the gospel has produced in you, let it grow. Let it keep growing. Don't stifle it. Keep growing in love. Keep loving other people. Even when they don't love you, keep loving them. This is Peter's thinking. We're not perfect. We're far from it. But there is a sincere love at work in Christ's people. It's genuinely there. It's growing in us promote that growth and one of the ways we can promote it is by reading the word of God which centers on God's self-sacrificial love and committed love and steadfast love for his people that's the principle of life that's at work in us it's love so keep going back to the source of love for strength to keep loving people especially when they're hard to love now I end this morning the same place I ended last week and that is by pointing out that this letter is explaining, as Peter puts it in chapter 5, the true grace of God. Do you see again that grace is central in the Christian life? 
understanding grace is critical for your life. Christians have been given grace from the triune God. Our experience of grace is past, present, and future. I love how the song we learned last month puts it. Hands to the plow, we're pressing on with grace before and grace behind. Grace, when it's rightly understood, is life-shaping. It's life-transforming. Many people, many religious people, are actually very scared of this grace. They think, if you talk about grace like our church believes it, you're actually going to disincentivize people's obedience. Don't tell people, they say, that they're already secure in a relationship with God. If they think that they're forever secure in a relationship with God, what motivation will they have for obedience? That might seem to make sense, but it is totally wrong. Totally wrong. That is the kind of thinking that every other religion, including false Christianities, grows out of. Motivate people to obey by telling them that they have to earn it. It's exactly opposite the logic of the Christian life. And Peter's writing this letter to explain the true grace of God. When you rightly understand it, you say, I've been given a relationship with God by grace. I don't need to earn it. And my relationship with God shapes my life. If we get it wrong our life will fall apart. It's sort of like if I keep trying to earn Hannah's love and get her to love me, it will destroy our marriage relationship. Our marriage relationship, which should picture what our relationship with God is like, actually is based on the fact that she has committed to loving me and I can rest in her love and that shapes my commitment to her. I've been given love, and it binds me to her. It's relationally binding. According to Peter and the rest of the Bible, we need to understand that we have grace before, grace behind. We look back at grace, we look ahead to grace, and this should fuel, according to this passage, our holiness, our obedience, our reverence, our love. Grace changes our lives. So I state it very simply, the true grace of God. We don't change our lives to get God's grace. We change our lives because we've been given God's grace. Don't get the order messed up. Don't mix up the order. It will mess up your life. It will mess up your eternity. The power for life change comes through grace. Let's pray.